Guys, we're going to be all over the scriptures today. So, we are in a new series. I guess we really can't call it new because today's technically, it's a four-week series, and this is week number three. So, we're like, we've, we've crested the hill, so we're going to head down the other side, and uh, we're going to finish it up next week. But, um, we're, so we're in a kind of a new series, and in week one, we talked about this topic of a shadow of doubt, was the title of our first message. And I shared with you in that message about my own personal faith crisis in high school. It was during my junior year of high school, and my faith crisis wasn't like many faith crises. I wasn't questioning Christianity. I was questioning my own faith. Like, how do I know I have a true faith in Jesus? And then last week, um, I really appreciate, Chris did a great job last week. Um, he covered the basis of assurance and signs of life. And I'm taking you guys through like a book um, that I'm having the leaders read. And I gave Chris like four chapters last week. And he had to make it into one talk. And it was a big challenge. So I appreciate him doing that last week. And uh, so that was last week's talk. And then today is about things that cause our assurance to erode. Okay, so we don't believe here that a, a true Christian can lose their salvation. We don't believe that. But there are some churches that do teach that. We're not one of those churches. Uh, we believe here that once you're born again spiritually, you cannot die spiritually. We also believe that once you're adopted into God's family, you cannot be unadopted. That's not how God operates. However, it is possible for a true Christian to lose their sense of assurance which is different than losing one's salvation. And we'll explain what this means as we go. So how does a true Christian lose that sense of certainty? How does it happen? So we're going to cover six ways in which it can happen. So how do Christians experience eroding assurance with their faith? So the first uh, way this happens is refusal to deal with known sin. So um, many years ago, I had some guys over at my house. This is like many, many years ago. Um, I had some guys over at my house for this Bible study discussion, and this one guy that I knew pretty well, he showed up this one particular night, and I wasn't really sure where this student was at spiritually, and this night he asked me a very, a very revealing question, I thought. He said, he asked me this question, he said, um, if we're saved by grace and not by works, then why does it matter if I sin? If we're, if we're truly saved by grace and not by works, then why does it really matter if I sin or not once I become a Christian? And, okay, so it's a fair question. So another, another way of asking that question might be, how much sin can I commit and still be considered a Christian, right? So think of an analogy with me. What if a, what if a married person asks this question? How much adultery can I commit and get away with it? Or if, if someone asked that, we might say, well, if you're asking that question and you're married, like, you don't really understand what marriage is about if you're asking that question. So if, if someone asks, how much sin can I commit, I would say they don't really understand what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus if that's the question that they're asking. So as Chris said last week, if someone has absolutely no desire in any area of life to obey Christ out of love for him, then we can probably say that person may not truly be saved. If they have like no desire in any area of life to live under the lordship of Christ, then I think we could say, I don't think that person's truly a follower of Christ. However, sometimes 
it is true that we surrender to Christ, and there are parts of our life that change, but there might be things that we are still hanging on to, or maybe we fall into certain sin patterns as a Christian, and does this mean that we're not a true Christian, if that's the case for us? I would say not necessarily, but a refusal to deal with known sin can lead to losing a sense of assurance, all right? Willful, unrepentant sin grieves God. We see this over in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where it says, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So this is talking about true believers. It says, those who have been sealed for the day of redemption. These, these people are true followers of Christ, true believers, but it's still possible for that person to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, even though they're a true follower of Christ. And this is not just sin that you fall into or struggle with, but this is like remorseless sin, like unrepentant sin that's being talked about here. And I think whenever we do that, the Holy Spirit's role is to, is to convict us. I like what uh, writer Donald Whitney says. He says, when we intentionally and impenitently, which means no remorse, no repentance, live like those who are not his, then he won't give us a strong sense of assurance that we are his. And sometimes when we're in this state, so whenever you and I are in this state of maybe walking and living in certain sins in our lives, when we're in this state, at times we get scared and we think, and we start to like focus on our assurance when God wants us to focus on repentance. In Psalm 66, verse 18, it says this, and this is a, a shocking verse. It says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, how many of you have been told your whole lives that, you know, God hears and listens to every prayer that you pray? Like, we're all told that, right? Now, listen, God knows everything. I mean, God knows you're praying that particular prayer, but if you're someone who's living and walking in sin, refusal to deal with known sin, and, and your prayers are just focused on your lack of assurance or your fear of something with God and not focused on repentance, this verse says that God doesn't listen to you. Like, let the weight of that sink down for a moment. That God will listen to you if you want to come and talk to him about your idolatry or about repentance, he'll listen to that prayer, but it says he would not listen to someone if they're wanting to talk to him about something other than their idolatry. Okay, this is a weighty, this is a weighty passage to read. And so if you and I are allowing idolatry to dominate our lives, God says, I will only listen if you're coming to repent of your idolatry. There are indeed, and we're going to cover this in a, in a talk that I'm going to do in later on in the summer, but there are certain prayers that God will not hear. He, of course, knows you're saying it, but he's, it's like he's not going to listen to what you're saying unless you're coming with a heart of repentance. So that's the, the first way in which Christians can experience eroding assurance. The second way is just spiritual laziness. 
Now, sometimes uh, students say things to us as the leaders like, you know, I just don't, I just don't sense God's presence like I, I once did. And, and I hate to ask obvious questions in, in those moments, but I would ask questions like this. Well, do you pray? Do you talk with God? Do you spend time in his word? Do you gather with other believers? There's, the reality is if you're not using the means of grace in which God has provided, that the chances are really good that you're just not going to sense God's presence like you, like you once did. This would be like a married person saying, you know, I just don't feel close to my wife. And I would say, well, well do you spend time with her? Do you ask her questions? Do you, are you curious about her? If somebody feels disconnected from a husband or wife, then what, what should they start doing? Like start spending time with them. Start asking them questions. Be curious about them. So if we feel disconnected from God, what should we do? I would say, well, it's, it's, it's fairly simple. God's given us ways we can spend time with him. And if we're not doing the basics, then the chances are we're not going to sense his presence in the way that we may um, once did. I think many of us, we sit around and we wait until we feel like it. We wait until we feel like doing these things, but then that never comes, and so you never actually engage God in this way. Um, most of us, here's how we relate to God. We want feeling to drive action. We want there to be like a, a flip switched in us where our feelings just change to desire him, and that's what's going to drive us to act. But so often it works in reverse where action needs to drive our affections for him. And this is going to sound controversial, but C.S. Lewis observed something about loving others, and this is in relationship to other people, um, that I think applies to our relationship with God. So what do you do when someone else, it's really hard for um, you to love someone else in your life? Well, he says this about this situation. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Now listen, I am not saying this, these words to an unbeliever. I'm not saying to an unbeliever, just pretend like you love God, just act like you do, and then it'll just, it'll just kick in. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying this to believers right now, that I think this statement can be applied even to our relationship with God, that when you feel kind of apathetic or you're just kind of going through spiritual laziness, a season of laziness spiritually, that you start to do the acts of spending time with him and, and even acts of compassion with other people, and you will, start, you, you will start to see that your heart begins to soften. The same is true of your personal relationships. Whenever you find in yourself, I just don't feel anything good towards that person. I really kind of hate that person. That what you'll find is when you start doing acts of love, care, and compassion for someone else, you will find your affections begin to be stirred in a way that um, I think is, is God working in you and on you. I think the same can apply to our relationship with God. So, um, so you cannot wait for feelings to drive action. Sometimes action is, is followed by the heart attitude. And so the, the third way in which um, Christians experience eroding assurance 
is satanic attacks. I don't know what else to call it, but it's just, it's, it's attacks from the enemy. So no one is immune from satanic attack. Jesus wasn't. Paul definitely wasn't. And you and I are not immune from satanic attack. Right after Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke the words, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But then the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness. And what happens? Well, Satan tempts him there in the wilderness. And then Paul, after confirming all these special visions and revelations from God, he says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me and to keep me from being conceited. So there is some debate about what was this thorn in the flesh that Paul experienced. Some say it was grief over his previous life, that he was so brutal towards Christians and his persecution of Christians that it was like this grief over his previous life. Others say it was um, the thorn in the flesh was his, his opponents. I mean, he had opponents from the Jewish world and the Gentile world, and, and Paul had a lot of enemies. Others say it's demonic harassment. Others say it's a physical ailment. Most say, I think most people say it was a physical thing, that Paul had some physical ailment that just bothered him. And, and Paul links that to this satanic attack. We all know how the enemy can work when our bodies don't work the right way and something's wrong with us the enemy can can use that to work against us and many would say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was linked to a physical ailment but then Paul links it to a Satan like a, an attack from Satan an attack from the enemy and I would say Satan wants nothing more than to neutralize the people of God he wants to convince he wants to convince lost people that they're saved, and save people that they're lost. Satan wants to give lost people the sense of, you're saved, don't worry about it, you're saved, you're, you're good. But Satan also wants to give Christians the sense that they're lost. And this is what Satan tries to do. So Satan wants us to rely on feelings of salvation and if he, can, if he can get you and I relying on feelings about salvation, then he can get us doubting our salvation. And then the next way in which I think uh, Christians can experience um, eroding assurance is, is trials or harsh circumstances. You know, sometimes God allows such harsh circumstances in the life of a Christian that we begin to doubt our standing before God. You know, if I'm, if I'm really a Christian, how can God let this happen to me? If I'm really a Christian, how can God let this happen to my family? I think of uh, when, I, when I worked at a different church many years ago, I was an intern at a church, and there was this family in our church, and a godly family. They had, you know, mom and a dad, and they had three daughters that were all in, one was in, I think two were in college at this point, one was still in high school, and um. And the dad got diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor, I think in his late 40s. Healthy man, fully healthy, and gets this diagnosis that we know he has like two years left to live. And so everyone's watching him. He's suffering well. He's giving all glory to God. He is trying the best he can to lead his family. 
knowing that death is coming apart from a miracle. And, uh, and then his wife gets breast cancer in the middle of all this. And it was treatable, so she was going to be okay, but it was still a big trial. She had to have surgery, had to have treatment. And then in the middle of all this, um, their youngest daughter gets in a car wreck one night and ends up being okay. But we go to the hospital because she's in the ER and none of us know how she is. And so me and my friends go to see her and her family there and ends up being okay. There was nothing majorly wrong with her, but it was just a scare of like another thing. And so here she was sedated. She was in the ER and we're all just in there in the room with her, her and her parents. And I remember like this scene where I'm looking over at her dad and he looked like he had aged 15 years because of his cancer treatment. And I hadn't seen him in a while and I'm, I'm watching her dad just kind of rub the back of her head as she's kind of laying there sedated on the table. And I just couldn't help but think, like, what else can happen to this family? Like, what, what did they do <laughs> to deserve just trial after trial after trial? And I know many of us can relate to that. You, like, many of you know suffering well. It's happened in your family in numerous ways. Even in your, your young life, it could be illness. It could be divorce. It could be abuse. It could be rejection from family, rejection, rejection from friends. And I know that one of the verses, I'm going to give you, show you a verse that I almost always tell you, don't quote this verse when your friends are going through trials and tribulations, but I'm going to quote it to you this morning because it's true. So Romans 8, 28, here's what it says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And again, I don't recommend that you just throw this verse around and say, hey, well, you're going through a trial, we'll listen to this verse. But I do want you to see the verse because I admit, I oftentimes avoid this verse because it is so cliche. But then I'm reminded, wait a second, it's in the Bible. And so it's, it's still true. And, and we shouldn't just wipe it clean from Scripture because it's, it's so overused and, and often abused in how we might use it. But it's still true. It's still God's Word. And in this this, this verse points to the sovereignty of God, and that just means that everything that happens on this earth, in my life and in your life, is under God's sovereign control. But here's the reality. Sometimes that truth can be a comfort. It can be a comfort to know that everything is under God's sovereign control. But for some of us, that is actually terrifying. Because you think, well, yeah, that's all the suffering I have experienced. It's actually kind of terrifying to know that God allowed it. Right? And so I think you go to verses like this and you, and you say, some way, I don't know how God's doing it, but some way he's going to work all this for good, whether it be my good, whether it be the good of others. God's going to bring about some kind of a good from this hor horrific suffering. Whenever we suffer, I find comfort in a couple of different ideas. One is this idea we see over in James as well, that suffering is like addition by subtraction. So as God, as God takes something away, whether it be a relationship or whether it be just, you know, the health of someone that you love or your own health or whatever it might be, as God takes something away, God adds other things. And he, he adds deeper things. But it's also helpful, I think, to remember that Jesus suffered. 
I actually find comfort knowing that the God of the universe, Jesus, came in the flesh and that he suffered. One of the shortest verses in the Bible is Jesus wept. But just think of the impact that's in those couple of words. That Jesus felt just what you and I feel. Like, I don't think he was pretending. I don't think he was like, okay, this is a moment where I have to, you know, fully be incarnated and pretend to care enough so that I cry and, and fulfill some prophecy. That's not what that was about. I think he really felt that when his friend Lazarus died. And yet he's God. Like, he, he could do something about it, and he raises him from the dead, of course. But he still wept at the loss of his friend Lazarus. So Jesus, I find some comfort knowing that Jesus suffered, Jesus wept, Jesus experienced rejection just like you and I do. And I think whenever we suffer, we believe, we ask questions like, you know, what did I do to deserve this, God? But is there anybody who could ask that question more than Jesus? I mean, Jesus suffered immensely. Is there anybody more than him that could say, what did I do to deserve this? And yet he didn't ask that question. He submitted to it, to the sovereignty of his own father. So if God allows such things to happen to Jesus, who never deserved them, we can be sure that evil and undeserved things happen to every follower of Jesus. So whether you're a Christian or not, this life is going to bring some suffering. So the question is, would you rather suffer with Jesus or without Jesus? There is someone that's real special to a lot of us in the office. Her name is Nikki Mayo. I don't think any of you all know her, but she served in our office for over 10 years. And, and she went on, and, and she still had attended here for the last several years as well. And her son and her, her husband, John, um, who we also care deeply about, he just started having these weird strokes a few months ago. And it's just a really bad situation. I mean, doctors are not giving a very good prognosis. He was in the hospital for three or four months in Dallas. Now he's back here on hospice care. And it, she's just waiting. She's just in this waiting game. He can't even move anything but his one arm on his own can barely speak, and it's been months, and many of us on staff have gone out to see her, and as, as sad as she is, and she is heartbroken at what is probably coming for her husband, but I will tell you that um, the answer to that question for her would be loud and clear. Would you rather suffer with Jesus or without Jesus? Because this life will bring suffering. So the question is, would you rather suffer with him or without him? I know the answer for her would be, I'd rather suffer with him than without. And then the next thing that can often cause us to have our assurance eroded is personality or temperament. Do you know there are many famous godly Christians who have struggled in this way? It's really crazy when you read about like giants of the faith throughout history and they have books, they have old sermons you can read, but many of these people were people that struggled immensely with depression and, and those kinds of things. You know, some people have these more introspective, like gloomy personalities, 
And if that's you, you know exactly who you are. These are like the deep thinkers of the world. They always think about all these deep thoughts. And deep thinkers are often like this, where they just, they just have a different personality. And they look at some of you people who are always upbeat and positive, and they're always like, why? Why is this person like this? Why can't they see the world for what it really is? Why can't they see the world for how it truly is the way that I see the world? And so the, the personality can be a factor here. There's a guy that I want you to see a picture of. This guy's name is uh, William Cowper. And um, uh, back then, everyone looked like George Washington. Everybody did. Um, it was just the same painting, just like, here's a different guy, but it's the same painting. You're like, that's, that's George Washington, I think. Um, this guy lived in England from 1731 to 1800, and um, someone wrote of him this. He was naturally inclined to morbid brooding and worry. He was prey to very deep religious doubts and often fell into deep depression. The last decade or more of his life was a period of deep gloom and a settled notion that God had cast him off. But what's crazy is God used this man, William Cowper, to write some really deep things for the Christian, for people that were, that were Christians. He wrote, he was really good at writing deep words of comfort to people. Because he experienced, like, doom and gloom himself, he could write these things uh, for people, and, and many people have benefited throughout history. We said in our last series that the more you grow, the less holy you might feel. But I think we have to make sure that that doesn't keep us in doom and gloom, but it drives us toward the grace and mercy offered us in the cross. If you focus only on your sins, it can lead to this kind of doom and gloom. And then lastly is spiritual dryness. This is the next way in which um, I think we can, have, uh, we can struggle with eroding assurance. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But what happens when it feels like God has? What should we do when it seems like God doesn't hear our prayers or we read the Bible or worship and we don't sense God at all? What do we, what do, we do? Well, there are many Psalms that are describing this dynamic. And I think God gives us prayers we can pray whenever we feel like this. I think it's why he's given us certain Psalms. We can pray those whenever we feel this way. You know, there's some days where I go for uh, walks and the sun hits my skin and I can feel it and it's obvious. I feel the warmth of the sun. But there are some days where I cannot feel the sun like that because there are these clouds in the way. Are they like today? And the distance of the sun has not changed, but there are some things that are in the way. And I think our walks with God can kind of be like that. Many of us want to attach our assurance with emotions and experiences and blessing, but God wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. And so I don't pretend to know all that God is doing in those times, but we can trust, we can trust, perhaps not until heaven, will you and I understand why he allowed us to feel forsaken for a season or many seasons in our life. I look at uh, Psalm 42, verses 5 and 6, where it says, the writer of the psalm is, is, is speaking these words to himself. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. 
And I think we have to learn to use God's word in this way. Like use God's word in the way that the writers used it, which they were preaching to themselves. And I think God wants you to use things like the Psalms. Read them, don't just read them, but preach them to yourself. Listen, the only sermons, the sermons you hear shouldn't be just the ones that we preach up here. They should be ones that you preach to yourself. You know, um, I can say this because my wife's not in here um, this morning, uh, but I've told you before how her, her prayer life just blows me away sometimes. And in this past week, uh, I get a phone call from her. I pick it up, and I'm like, hello, hello. It's obviously that she accidentally dialed me, right? And I'm like, hello. And, I, she's not, and suddenly I, I can tell she's driving, and she's still not responding to me. And, uh, and then I just hear her start, like, talking, like, emphatically. I'm like, who is she talking to? And I realized, like, she's praying. And it was, you know, we call our prayer time, like, a quiet time. Like, it was not a quiet time. Like, it was, like, she was emphatically, like, praying. And then I felt like I'm, like, kind of guilty, like I'm eavesdropping. I'm like, I need to, she might start talking about me in a second. I need to hang up before I hear that part. So I hang up the phone, you know, and later I'm like, I heard you praying today for, like, a good five seconds, and it was, like, a sermon. And it was. Like, I'm hearing her, like, preach truth to herself through prayer. And it's something that I think I struggle with and don't do all that well myself. You know, I opened up this series um, telling you kind of part of my own story of a faith crisis I had in high school. The other half of that story is I went to my youth pastor and I said, man, I'm struggling. Like, how do I know I'm truly saved? Like, how do I know my faith is real? I'm not questioning Christianity. I'm questioning my own faith. And we sat down and talked in his office, and, and he opened up the scriptures to uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. I want to read this to you now. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so he and I just sat and looked at that text for a few minutes. He kind of walked me through it. And he said, listen, the fact that you're this concerned about your salvation is a good sign. It's a good sign that you care deeply about the things of God. It's a sign that you care deeply about God's word. And I found great comfort in this passage because I was questioning you know, whether or not I'd like done it right. I was kind of turning faith into a work. Like, how do I know I did it right? Did the faith thing the right way? Making it about me. And I just read these words like over and over and over. Whenever a student comes and has these questions, I point them back to these two verses. And this is not some formula like, okay, go confess with your mouth and then like believe in your heart. But what I think it's saying is that if you truly believe something in your heart, it's going to affect the way that you live. Are you going to struggle with sin? Of course, you, we all are. But it's going to affect the way that you live. And that's going to come out with a confession from the mouth. Like that could be the, the first time you, you confess Jesus is Lord. Whether you want to call it the prayer of salvation, whatever word you want to, whatever phrase you want to use with that. Or whether it's you confessing that Jesus is Lord to 
your, your family, your friends, through baptism. I think if you truly believe something in the heart, it's going to come out as a confession with the mouth. And it kind of walked me through, like, look, look at how this gospel has impacted your life, even as a 17-year-old student. And that gave me this confidence that I don't put confidence in my walk with God based on how good my faith is. Like Brandon said in the main service today, that it's not about the strength of your faith or the size of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. It's why Jesus says things like, faith is like a mustard seed, like tiny, insignificant, but it's what the object of that faith being placed into is the most important thing.